A check, a badge, and a candidate who doesn't want to commit. The lead starts right now. With just over three weeks to go in the countdown to the midterms, early voting begins in a key state that the entire country is watching. Herschel Walker with a major new admission today. And the Republican who wants to be Arizona's next governor indicates she might not be interested in the actual results. Plus, kamikaze terror. Kyiv comes under deadly attack from drones that Ukraine says Russia is getting from Iran. A pregnant woman among those killed. Could this change how the U.S. gives support to Ukraine? And stopped on a, quote, mission to kill. A serial killer suspect in California arrested. What we're learning today about his past and how the police finally got it. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper. And we begin this hour with our politics lead. Just 22 days from Election Day, CNN's latest poll of polls shows Democrats and Republicans in a dead heat for control of the House of Representatives. Early voting kicked off today in the critical swing state of Georgia. Democratic Senator and Reverend Raphael Warnock hit the polls this morning to cast his ballot. Warnock is attempting to fend off a challenge from embattled Republican nominee and football legend Herschel Walker. Walker today acknowledged for the first time that he did indeed send a $700 check to a woman who alleges the money was provided to reimburse her for an abortion. Walker denies he sent the check for that purpose. Walker is also defending his use of an honorary sheriff's badge, which he flashed at a debate on Friday night with Warnock. Voters won't get another chance to see the candidates face off again before Election Day. As CNN's Eva McKen reports, turnout in Georgia is expected to top previous midterm records because the ballot there, as in so many other states, features a full slate of heated races. It is time to get underway. Georgia Republican Herschel Walker defending his move during Friday's Senate debate to pull out an honorary sheriff's badge from his hometown sheriff's department. This is from my hometown. This is from Johnson County, from the sheriff of Johnson County, which is a legit badge. Everyone can make fun, but this badge, give me the right. If I, let me finish. If anything happened in this county, I have the right to work with the police and get the things done. The GOP nominee showed off the badge during a discussion over support for police as he faced off with Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Yes. That is not allowed, sir. Yes. I ask you to put that prop away. Well, it's not a prop. It, it this is. is real. A CNN fact check found Walker has never had a job in law enforcement. The surprising moment leading Warnock today to suggest the former NFL star not a serious candidate. The people of Georgia deserve a serious person to represent them at serious times. I guess he expects the people of Georgia now to hallucinate and imagine that he is also a United States senator. He's clearly not ready. Walker also facing fresh questions about reports. He paid for a former girlfriend's abortion more than a decade ago. He's now acknowledging sending a $700 check to the woman, but still denies it was for the procedure. This is still a lie because she's the mother of my child. So you're going to see me a check or somebody giving a check. So that, that I'm saying it's a lot. Do you know what this $700 check is I have is no for? idea what that can be for. Is that your signature I, on the oh, check, though? It, it could be. But it doesn't matter whether it's my signature or not. As voters remained concerned with the state of the U.S. economy and President Joe Biden's handling of the issue, Warnock deflecting questions about whether he would support Biden if he runs again in 2024. Part of the problem with our politics right now. It's, it's all about the politicians. And so I'm, I'm not going to do what the pundits want me to do. I'm gonna do what the people of Georgia hired me to do. 
In the battle for control of the House, a CNN poll of polls finds voters are evenly divided when it comes to which party's candidate they would support in their own district, with 46% saying they would back the Democratic candidate and 46% saying they would vote for the Republican. Though the Senate contest is taking up a lot of the oxygen here in the state, the governor's race also vital. Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp locked in a highly anticipated rematch. They will take the debate stage here in Atlanta in just a few hours. John. All right, Eva McKen in Georgia will be watching. Thank you very much. And as Abrams and Kemp face off tonight in Georgia, debates will get underway in two other critical races. Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah will face his challenger, Independent Evan McMullen, in a closely watched Senate race there. In Ohio, Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan will debate Republican nominee J.D. Vance. They are seeking the seat of retiring Republican Senator Rob Portman. CNN's Omar Jimenez is live for us. Omar, this will be Vance and Ryan's second debate. What can we expect? Yeah, John, their second and last time debating this election cycle, just about three weeks to election day. And if you watch the first one, it was pretty contentious at times. Of course, they hit on some of the major issues in these midterms like abortion, law enforcement, the economy and more. But at times they were talking directly at each other. Moderators were trying to jump in. Tim Ryan said of J.D. Vance kissing up to President Trump that Ohio needs, and I am quoting here, an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. So we'll look for some of that same dynamic here. But also, Ryan doubled down on the fact that he didn't want to see President Biden run for a second term, saying he wants to see a generational change on both sides of the political aisle. And the other interesting fact here is despite Ryan outraising J.D. Vance by a large margin, margin from July through September, Vance is actually set to outspend Tim Ryan from now through Election Day, largely driven by national Republican financial support, the likes of which Ryan hasn't quite seen on the Democratic side. You were quoting there and very carefully quoting there, too, I might add. I do want to ask you as well about the Utah Senate race. This is really interesting. One of the most curious developments is Republican Senator Mitt Romney's decision not to make an endorsement there. Why won't he? Well, his explanation is that he's friends with both Evan McMullen, the independent running, and Senator Mike Lee, the Republican. But as you can imagine, it's infuriated many people on the GOP side, literally because he's the only GOP senator who hasn't endorsed Mike Lee. All, all that aside, uh, or I should say, they both have differing, differing views on President Trump, Romney, and Lee. All that aside, though, Lee didn't endorse Romney back in 2018. It's closer than many expected. We'll see if this debate moves the needle at all. All right, watching that closely as well. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much for your reporting. To Arizona's gubernatorial race now, where the Republican candidate says she will accept the results of the election if she wins. Carrie Lake still says she believes the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. This is what she had to say about her own race in an interview with CNN's own Dana Bash. My question is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. The aforementioned Dana Bash, CNN's chief political correspondent, joins us now live. And Dana, how unusual is this to hear from a candidate who stands a good chance of becoming governor? And why do you think she's doing it? Well, it's unusual if you have a time machine and go back pre-2020. It is not unusual 
uh, when you have Republican candidates who are shaping themselves in the mold of Donald Trump. And in some ways, she is kind of a new and improved version of Donald Trump if you are a staunch so-called MAGA supporter. And the reason she's doing it is to keep her options open. Because if she doesn't win, either outright or after the votes are, are all counted, because uh, we know with Arizona in particular, we know from 2020, and it could be the same in 2022, it could take a while because of all the mail-in uh, ballots that are going to come in. I asked her one more time, even past what you just played, John, uh, whether or not if she loses, she will uh, concede. And she insisted that she will win. That might be the case. But the fact that she won't say, if I lose, I will concede, uh, as is the custom, generally speaking, in a democracy, is uh, very noteworthy. Yeah, elections uh, can't be valid only if you win. You also interviewed the Democratic candidate for Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs. This is part of that conversation. So just to be clear, if you uh, become governor, you will push for a law that has absolutely no limits in any point of the pregnancy on abortion. That's your position. That's what you would want to be the law of the land in Arizona. The fact is right now that we have very limited options and that we need to get politicians out of the way and let doctors provide the care that they are trained to provide. So, Dana, Arizona is a purple state now. What's the risk reward of taking a position like this on abortion? There is a a lot of risk and potential reward. And uh, you sort of alluded to this when you say a position like this. What she is suggesting is that there would be no legal restrictions at all on abortion. And just to give you a a sense of context, what's going on in uh, Arizona right now is that uh, the current Republican governor, Doug Ducey, signed a ban of abortion after 15 weeks with some exceptions. And the attorney general, also a Republican, is trying to get that off the books, go back to 1901 and a law there which would completely ban, pretty much completely ban abortion, except in the life uh, of a mother when that is at risk. So this is a completely opposite point of view. And the notion of a purple state, if you uh, really look at the at the specifics and where most people are in this incredibly complicated, incredibly personal question, it is somewhere, generally somewhere in the middle, which is uh, that there should be uh, liberties and, and abilities for women to uh, to do uh, to have an abortion, uh, but not necessarily unlimited when it comes to the viability of that pregnancy. Again, it is very complicated, but it's an issue that, of course, we know Democrats have been pushing the whole notion of abortion because of the uh, of Roe being rescinded. But you don't really hear a lot of specifics on how they want to do it when it comes to the new law of the land. Dana Basher, chief political correspondent. Great to see you. Terrific reporting this week on the State of the Union, as always. So we have more today on the Democrats' midterm message and whether they're getting it wrong, and that's including the White House. We're going to ask Senator Elizabeth Warren about that, plus get her take on the just-announced developments in the president's student loan forgiveness plan. Then the feds want the maximum. Prosecutors lay out how long they think Steve Bannon should spend in prison for what he calls the misdemeanor from hell. And exorbitant overcharge. New documents from Congress show what Donald Trump's company made the Secret Service pay to stay at his hotels while he was in office.
back now with more of our politics lead. With just 22 days to go until the November midterm elections, President Biden is touting the launch of the application process for his plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. The administration says 8 million Americans have already signed up since the website went live on Friday. Joining us now is Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Senator, thank you so much for being with us. Obviously, this will have an impact on people's lives. But a new New York Times uh, Siena poll shows that the top issue for Americans right now, the economy and inflation. Some economists have said that this student loan forgiveness plan could make inflation worse. Can you definitively say it won't? Yes. Uh, actually, there have been a lot of studies around this, and what they've shown is that it's not going to have an impact on inflation. In fact, the way I think about this is this is a key difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans scream about inflation and have absolutely zero plans to do anything about costs that actually come to families. Democrats say, we've actually got some plans here and are doing some really important things to move the needle, like we are reducing student loan debt for 43 million Americans, like we are reducing the cost of insulin for millions of Americans. We are making sure that we're gonna have negotiation of prescription drug prices. We're reducing the cost of utilities. The president is working to bring down the cost of gasoline. Look, we have right now the lowest unemployment in decades, the lowest unemployment among Hispanics in the history of the country. We have high prices and Democrats have plans and are working to bring those prices down. Republicans, their view is they got nothing. So you know that a lot of students or former students who have loan debt, it's privately held loans. This move from the president doesn't address this. So how do you get to them? How do you reach these holders? You know, right now, the president is doing what he can do within his legal authority. And that is where the United States government is the creditor. He's able to cancel a portion of student loan debt, and that's what he's doing. He's using the tool available to him. In order to be able to deal with private student loans, we'd have to have Congress move because it would take a different kind of law. And right now, uh, the Republicans block us basically on anything we're trying to do to help bring down costs for American families. So want to do more work in the area of helping American families uh, vote Democratic. JohnFetterman.com, MandelaBarnes.com, a lot of folks out there who are taking this case directly to the people. And I, I want to do everything I can to help them. You're mentioning two Democrats who are running for Senate in key swing yep. states there. So the New York Times and Siena came out with a poll today. And again, they asked people what the top issue facing the country was in economy and inflation are number one, basically, for most voters out there. Yet the Democrats see many seem to be focused on abortion as the main issue. And the Times quoted a person in this article when they're writing up this poll. And I want to read this to you. Miss Ackerman said she disagreed 1000 percent with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and erase the national right to an abortion. But that doesn't really have a lot to do with my decision, she said of her fall vote. I'm more worried about other things meaning the economy and inflation. So how much focus on abortion do you think is too much in these elections? Look, I think that we have a very strong message 
as Democrats on the economy, particularly up against Republicans who can do nothing but shout and have no ideas. But I also think talking about access to an abortion is powerfully important for everyone. Abortion is on the ballot in 2022. And for every person who cares about individual autonomy, who cares about freedom, who cares about whether or not decisions are made by the person who's pregnant and her doctor or whether they're made by the government, then I think this is a powerfully important issue. And I just wanna add, it's not the only powerfully important issue. Democracy is also on the ballot in 2022. There are election deniers all across this country who are on the ballot. Uh, we've just heard a candidate in Arizona who says in effect that she's not going to accept the results unless she wins. That is a direct assault on democracy. And so long as the Republicans continue to embrace that, then they are the ones who are putting our democracy at risk. So there's a lot that's powerful, that's on the ballot. And I think this is why we need to show up for the Democrats. We need to show up for them on the economy. We need to show up for them on abortion. We need to show up for them on democracy. So former President Obama is showing up in three key states later this month, hitting the campaign trail. But he's also warning Democrats not to be what he calls a buzzkill and how they talk about politics. Listen. How does politics even, how is it even relevant to, uh, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about? My family, my kids, you know, work that gives me satisfaction, uh, you know, having fun, you know, not, you know, not, not being a buzzkill, right? <laughs> sometimes Democrats are, right? It's, it's like, you know, sometimes people just want to not feel as if uh, they are, walking on eggshells. What do you think about that? One of the words that people assign to that type of thing is, is wokeness. Do you think, or how much do you think that is hurting the party? You know, look, I think that President Obama makes a very good point. Uh, we are an optimistic people, and we want to build futures for ourselves and our children that we can believe in. It's why we get up every day. It's why we work hard. It's why we stay up late at night. But I just want to say here, it's the Republicans who are trying to keep 43 million Americans from getting their student loan debt canceled. It is Republicans who want to repeal the laws that we just got in place to cut the cost of insulin and to let Medicare negotiate drug prices. It's the Republicans who want to see us raise interest rates and put millions of people out of work. So i I am very worried about buzzkill. I am worried about what it is the Republicans want to do to an America that really, what we're trying to do as Democrats is just build opportunity. Just let families get out there and do what they do best. Let individuals get out there and do what they do best and let them make their own decisions, including letting women make their own decisions about abortion and about their health care. I, to me, that's the heart of what it means to be an American and to be optimistic about the future we're building. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, 22 days until Election Day. That's clear. Thank you very much for being with us. All right. Deadly drone strikes. Uh, Russia targets Ukraine's capital with kamikaze weapons apparently supplied by Iran. 
We're live in Kyiv next with the aftermath and the debate over whether the U.S. and its allies could be stepping up or should be stepping up the equipment they're giving to Ukraine. Topping our world lead, this afternoon, Moscow's mayor shut down the city's military draft offices nearly a month after Putin's decision to mobilize Russian citizens to fight his bloody war. Some Russian men were spared at the last moment, released just hours after getting drafted. This, as attacks today by Russia, relied less on human fighters and more on high-tech warfare. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Kyiv, where bodies are being extracted from rubble as a result of Russia's latest kamikaze drone strikes on civilians. A policeman takes aim at the kamikaze drone as it bears down on Kyiv. Nicknamed mopeds in Ukraine because of their distinctive whine, 28 were launched toward the city on Monday. The majority are successfully shot out of the sky. But four break through, shattering the early morning calm in the heart of the capital. So you can see that's the railway station down at the end. The air is thick uh, with the smell of explosives. Investigators are already collecting evidence. Excuse me, извините, excuse me. It's a... Garan, it's the, from the drone, yes? Where did you find it? Где нашел точно? So they're saying that's uh, the tail fin from the drone that hit. The target, according to Ukrainian authorities, Kiev's energy infrastructure. But one hits a residential building nearby with devastating results. You can see at least one person has been killed. They're taking the body away now. Rescue workers comb through the smoldering rubble. There have been reports of voices still alive inside. An extraordinarily lucky older woman is rescued from her balcony next door, bundled away to the hospital. Up until one week ago, the city had been relatively calm. Now, Kiev's mayor says the Russians' goal is to make life as miserable as possible for civilians as colder weather sets in. The Russians want to destroy right now the critical infrastructure of our hometown water, electricity, heating. What impact does it have on the psyche of the people of Kyiv that there are kamikaze drones now attacking your capital? We, everyone is so angry. Everyone wants to defend the families, want to defend hometown. As we prepare to interview a volunteer medic from Sweden, the air raid sirens start up again. Organization called Swedish Rescuers. to hearing that sound right now. We move to take cover. Three cruise missiles have been reported heading in the direction of Kyiv. This time, they are intercepted by Ukraine's air defensives. But Kyiv's residents know that there will be more. Now, John, we have heard from President Volodymyr Zelensky tonight. He said that just in a space of 12 hours, 37 Iranian Shahed-136 drones and several cruise missiles were intercepted. Also, the foreign ministry saying in the past week, 100 of those so-called kamikaze drones, they have hit residential buildings, power plants, sewer tre- sewage treatment plants, bridges. Uh, the foreign ministry goes on to say one-third 
of Ukraine's energy infrastructure has been damaged as a result of those drone strikes. That's why we have seen Ukraine's foreign ministry calling for sanctions against Iran for supplying this weapon to Russia. John? Clarissa Ward, what a window into a day in the life of Kyiv. Thank you so much to you and your team for that report. I want to bring in the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. Ambassador, thank you so much for being with us. I want to read you a tweet from the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, who wrote, quote, So it's okay for Iran to provide Russia with long-range weapons, but not okay for NATO to provide Ukraine with weapons of similar ranges? What's your view of that? My view, John, is that NATO and the United States should definitely provide Ukraine with the long-range weapons they need to fight back, to hit back at targets, Russian targets, in Ukraine that are firing these kinds of weapons at them. There's, Ambassador McFall is exactly right. Um, the Russians show no restraint, and if we show restraint, that's a mistake. We should be providing the Ukrainians with every ability they need to fight back, to attack back, and to defend themselves, defend themselves against these drones that are coming in. So that's very important that we provide these weapons to them, and right now. Restraint, you say, is a mistake. I want you to keep that in mind. In that similar vein, the U.S. Special Envoy for Iran, Robert Malley, told CNN that the U.S. will continue to sanction Iran for providing drones to Russia. But look, if you look at the State Department website, you can find a list of dozens of U.S. sanctions already slapped on Iran, most recently for their violent crackdown on peaceful protesters. So what difference will additional sanctions on Iran have to to keep the flow of weapons to Russia? John, sanctions work slowly. There's no doubt about it. They send a message that is unacceptable for anyone, Iranians, the North Koreans, anyone, to be providing weapons to Russia for this brutal, horrible, inhumane attack, unprovoked, on a nation that did nothing to deserve this. Uh, So this message is a strong one. You're right. Sanctions take a while to go into effect. And if there are people who are responsible for these weapons transfers, they'll they'll be affected, they'll be sanctioned, they'll pay a penalty. But what really needs to happen is we need to provide those weapons that we talked about at the beginning to the Ukrainians so they can fight, so they can push the Russians out of their country. So it's not just Iran now helping Russia. Belarus is helping Russia now also with Russian troops entering that country once again. It really does seem like more and more countries are getting pulled into this conflict. Are you worried that that something larger, a global conflict here, is looming around this? So the Russians are trying to pull other nations in, but... Even nations like Belarus are not eager to get involved. They know. They know the the sanctions, the penalties, the payments, the pain that they will face if they join this battle. So President Lukashenko of uh, Belarus is not eager to join. President Putin is leaning on him to, to provide these kind of weapons, provide this kind of support. Lukashenko knows that Belarusian people do not want to join this fight. There are no nations. When, when you take a look at the UN, John, look at the look at the vote there. Nations vote overwhelmingly against the Russians. The, the nations of the world have voted overwhelmingly, 143 to five, to put to to condemn the Russians' attack. So we know that there are attempts 
to bring other nations in. But so far, they're failing. Ambassador Bill Taylor, as always, we really appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much for being with us on The Lead. Thank you, John. All right, jail time and a hefty fine. Up next, the sentence federal prosecutors want Steve Bannon to get for his refusal to go before the January 6th committee and what Bannon is now countering with. We are back in our politics lead. The Justice Department is asking a federal judge to impose a harsh sentence on former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon for his defiance of a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the deadly January 6th attack. Bannon is seeking probation from the court and is asking for Friday's sentencing to be delayed. And as CNN's Sarah Murray reports, the committee is set to ask a key figure in the investigation for a third interview. For defying a subpoena from the House January 6th committee... This is going to be the misdemeanor from hell. Trump ally Steve Bannon deserves the maximum penalty at Friday's sentencing, prosecutors say, asking the judge to sentence Bannon to six months behind bars and $200,000 in fines after he was convicted of contempt of Congress. Steve Bannon is one of a handful of people who just blew us off, and he's been convicted for contempt of Congress. Prosecutors argue in their court filing that the rioters who overran the Capitol on January 6th did not just attack a building, they assaulted the rule of law. By flouting the Select Committee's subpoena and its authority, the defendant exacerbated that assault. Number one, I didn't want to have a meeting longer than five minutes. Bannon's team insists the right-wing media firebrand should only get probation, and any sentence should be postponed pending his appeal of his conviction. Chairman, All of this as the January 6th committee plans to formally serve former President Donald Trump with a subpoena for documents and testimony this week. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. Saying they hope he'll comply. If he wants to clear the record, uh, he will have an opportunity uh, to do it. Despite Trump's clear disdain for the committee. These are hacks and thugs. In the meantime, the panel is pressing ahead after last week's hearing. The day before the joint session... On January 5th, Secret Service was aware of increased chatter focused on Vice President Pence. And seeking new information from the U.S. Secret Service. They sent the Vice President up to the Capitol with, you know, a fairly small group of people to protect him into what was, uh, should have obviously been foreseen as a potentially very dangerous situation. New documents turned over to the committee and obtained by CNN show the Secret Service and its law enforcement partners knew about violent rhetoric and threats aimed at lawmakers on social media before the U.S. Capitol attack. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren saying they will ask former Secret Service Assistant Director Tony Ornato, head of Trump's Secret Service detail Robert Engel, and others to testify again. We're in a position in the very near future to call the uh, witnesses from the Secret Service back in for a few additional questions. Now, Ornato has already met with the committee on two prior occasions, but it's clear that members have more questions for him. Of course, this committee's mandate expires with a congressional term. So even though they've set out a lot of potential work, they have a limited time frame to complete it. John. Yeah, potentially very limited. Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Also in our politics lead, new documents show the Trump Organization charged then-President Trump's Secret Service detail exorbitant room rates for dozens of trips to Trump properties. This follows an investigation by the House Oversight Committee, which says its findings are far from exhaustive. The committee says on one occasion in November 2017, the Secret Service was charged a rate of $1,185 per room per night when Donald Trump Jr. stayed at the Trump International Hotel in D.C. That rate is nearly six times 
the allowable per diem rate for traveling government employees. Now, Eric Trump denies the findings and insists the rooms were offered for free or at cost. So he allegedly was out hunting on a mission to kill what police in Stockton, California, are sharing about the suspect accused in a series of killings. In our national lead, police in California say they are, quote, sure we stopped another killing. That's after arresting a 43-year-old that they think is connected to a string of recent murders in and around Stockton. As seen as Nick Watt reports, police say he's a man who preferred to lurk in the shadows. Our surveillance team followed this person while he was driving. Wesley Brownlee, 43 years old, lives in Stockton, now in custody, a suspected serial killer. We watched his patterns and determined early this morning he was on a mission to kill. He was out hunting. Five Stockton men were slain between early July and late September, all shot while walking alone late at night or in the early morning. Lorenzo Lopez was the last. In the neighborhood where he was killed, his little brother Jerry paid tribute. He was there for me. He was watching out for me. I wish I could have watched out for him. Police now believe Brownlee's spree began in nearby Oakland in April of last year with the early morning murder of a lone man. They say days later, Brownlee shot a woman in Stockton, but she survived. Nothing was stolen from any of the victims and police say they found no gang connections. Can you speak to any possible motive? That I don't know. Early October, police released this video of a person of interest, offered a $125,000 reward, asked the public for help, and tips, police say, did help lead them to Brownlee. For weeks, this city has been... On edge and scared. Now, some relief. The suspect's reign of terror in our community has come to an end. Relief particularly near where Brownlee was arrested around 2 a.m. Saturday. It's just a very scary feeling, you know, to know that we were that, he was that close to us. I'm so thankful to God that he was caught. He was wearing dark clothing and had a mask around his neck. He was also armed with a firearm when he was taken into custody. We are sure we stopped another killing. Now, police in Stockton say that this killer liked to strike in areas that were quiet, dark, and with very few security cameras. Could be luck, looks like design. And also, a number of his victims were reportedly homeless people. Now, the suspect, Brownlee, is going to make his first court appearance tomorrow. He will be arraigned in the afternoon, and we should hear about charges and maybe a little more about motive. John? An enormous potential relief for that community. Nick Watt, thank you for your reporting. Yeah. Inflation is taking a major bite out of infrastructure. Up next, how big projects made possible by that huge funding bill are getting pricier. All right now in our money lead, despite historic investments such as the landmark bipartisan infrastructure law, critical repair projects on roads and bridges are buckling as inflation drives prices up. CNN's Gabe Cohen takes us to Pittsburgh, where President Biden is likely hoping voters will notice the results and not the price tag. January 28th, Pittsburgh's Fern Hollow Bridge, a mess of mangled steel and icy rubble, 
after a collapse just hours before President Biden arrived in the Steel City to tout the new infrastructure bill. It looked like something out of a movie. John Atkinson, a paramedic, treated victims in that wreckage. Now he's back to see Fern Hollow reborn. It's incredible the progress that's been made in a relatively short amount of time. This is the bridge eight months later amid a rapid rebuild. Crews are finishing the surface, hoping to reopen by year's end. The entire project paid for with $25 million from the infrastructure bill. Had we not had those funds, we could not have started this project. There'd be a hole in the ground. We probably would have removed the existing bridge, and we'd be waiting to see when we could afford to build a new one. The first funds from the bipartisan bill are starting to make an impact nationwide, with nearly $180 billion already allocated, not just for highway and bridge repairs like Fern Hollow, but also for airport renovations, public transportation, and clean water improvements allowing states to begin clearing a backlog of critical projects and get new ones off the ground. In Pittsburgh, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation is preparing to finally fix this bridge, where nets and shields are keeping decaying concrete from dropping onto a playground and into Stacy Davis's yard kind of looms overhead, you know. Um, we kind of we kind of keep an eye on it. We're not sure what's happening. Across town, the first phase of construction is underway on the city's longest bridge, where chunks of steel and concrete are falling into a sewage treatment plant. The department says the price to repair it is already 23% higher than expected. That's inflation taking a big bite out of the infrastructure bill, with the cost of construction materials up 36% in two years and labor up 10%. In Pennsylvania alone, inflation is eating up close to 75% of the gains from the bill, which could force officials to delay less urgent projects. The city of Bridges knows the cost of crumbling infrastructure. It weighs on John Atkinson each time he goes to work. I'd be lying if I told you that the thought wasn't in the back of my mind that, you know, could this could this happen again as I'm driving a 50,000 pound truck across some of these bridges. I hope that this bridge is a sign of things to come for the rest of the bridges that we have here. And as inflation drives up the cost of these projects, several transportation officials have told me the funding from the infrastructure bill has prevented a really dire deficit. John, that official in Pittsburgh said without it, they'd likely end up shutting down bridges and they'd be struggling to keep roads together. Look, it's work that needs to happen. Gabe Cohen, thank you very much for that report. Be sure to join Jake Tapper on CNN tonight. Jake takes a hard look at freedom of speech on social media with the news today that Kanye West, mired in controversy over his recent anti-Semitic posts, plans to buy the conservative site Parler. That's tonight at 9 Eastern right here on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.